Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today, we'll be your hosts. So, Tane, do you remember way back when when we started this podcast and we had a, a series of episodes dealing with evidence essentials? Oh, yeah, Wade. I, I remember it fondly. Started recording back at the UGA Law School, and as I recall, we had an FOP join us, a friend of the podcast, and he would do evidence essentials. What was that guy's name again? You remember, it's Garen Mueller. Oh, that's right, the guy with the weird name. My my (laughs) former staff attorney and a former assistant DA, who he now works for some law firm in Augusta. Remember, he has a young son and a wife who is also an assistant DA. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, He was that guest who was always trying to plug his Augusta law firm whenever he was on the podcast. I remember that. Whatever happened to good old Garen? Well, during the pandemic, we have not seen much of Garen here at the Good Judgment podcast, but I recruited him to come out of seclusion, wear his mask, and to make a return appearance on the Good Judgment podcast. Oh, man, that's great. Hey, Garen, uh, tell everyone hello. Hello. Wow, that was rather literal. Okay, um, in all seriousness, we're really glad that you're back with us today. Well, I'm glad to be back to get out of my COVID hibernation cave and see you guys again. So it's always nice to see some uh, friendly faces. So, Garen, tell the folks what exciting evidence or evidence-ish topics that we're going to be discussing today. You're right with evidence-ish, but we're going to talk about apportionment today. Hey, that's awesome. I'm really glad we're discussing this topic because it does come up with some frequency in tort cases, and the rules have changed since Wade and I uh, attended law school. So let's dive right in. Garen, tell us all about apportionment, and we will interrupt you on the regular. All right. Well, (laughs) try not to glaze over as I go through all this, but it all started back in 1987 with the Tort Reform Act. So OCGA 511233 named apportionment of damages and actions against more than one person uh, requires that damages, of course, be apportioned if there is a non-party or a different person uh, who may be at fault in the case. So, Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so we'll hear that a few times, I guess. Uh So a lot of people get confused by it because there's comparative fault and then there's apportionment and then there's joint and several liability. So let's just throw it all out there for a law school exam. But I'm I'm already flashing back, Wade. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not pretty. No. The real way to look at it is it's a rule of apportionment by comparative fault. So the best way to do it is just look at the varying levels and degrees of fault between the various parties relative to each other. And just remember that the damages are what they are. There's no bearing upon the damages. It's just how those damages are split up among parties or non-parties. Okay. So again, flashing back to law school, there was a period of time where we had to, in tort law, where you had to prove that the, the, the defendant was at least more negligent than the plaintiff 
Yes. And there is this whole thing about comparative fault. And what was the other C word? I don't remember. Do you remember, Tane? Comparative and yeah, sorry. Maybe yeah, maybe maybe our, maybe our listeners will remember it. There's another they're screaming it in their cars right now. Yeah. Contribution? Yeah, yeah. Contribute. I don't know. Yeah. Is this what you're talking negligence. about? Is this the same thing? Yes. yes, yes, yes. In fact, in the statute, go ahead and gear up your drop, but OCJ fifty one twelve thirty-three subparagraph G. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. Actually, cites comparative negligence it codifies it if the plaintiff is more than 50 percent at fault they cannot recover so comparative and contributory i guess was the other c word I, it just kind of struck me so so is this what we're talking about here is comparative and contributory or is this comparing defendants fault or, or at fault parties at fault well it's or a both? little it's a little of both. Um, so comparative negligence is a bar to recovery. So if a plaintiff is more than 50% at fault, they are barred from making any recovery. However, a contributory negligent plaintiff, if they're less than 50% at fault, their damages are reduced by their their negligence or their fault. So, so let me ask- Would be 10% of damages reduced. So let me ask a question about that, Garen. Is the plaintiff's negligence compared with the negligence of all defendants grouped together or with each individual defendant? All defendants grouped together. All right. So the defendants then, is this, a, is this an affirmative defense for them uh, with respect to plaintiff's negligence? Absolutely. It's an affirmative defense and it, is, it carries a, a preponderance burden. All right. So it sounds like that that's something that a, a, a preliminary question that either the jury or the judge, whoever's going to be the trier of fact, would have to decide at some point. When does that usually occur? I think it's going to be at different stages depending on your facts. So if there's some strong evidence of some comparative negligence between two parties, then it's obviously going to get into the case. However, if there's slight evidence or it doesn't come out very well at trial, I'd imagine that there would be a directed verdict uh, on the behalf of the plaintiff. So I think a judge in, in pre-trial may address that, and then during the trial may address it. Even you know, summary judgment motion may address it. But it's really going to depend on the facts of the case. All right. So let, you talked about facts of case. Yes. Let's throw some factual scenario out there, and and it, I'll, I'll give you one, and maybe you have one, Garen, but but let's say that somebody is driving down the road. They have a green light. They come upon the intersection. Other car allegedly runs the red light and causes a collision. In that scenario, you know, maybe they claim the the plaintiff was driving too fast or something and somehow partially negligent, but let's say the plaintiff was hurt real bad. So therefore they want to bring like the state in to say, well, this intersect, not only did this guy run the red light, but this intersection was designed so poorly that the state should also be chipping in some, some money here. Tane, you know anything about this? Yeah. Now you're in my wheelhouse, Wade. I spent about 10 years um, trying that case, the one you just uh, that you just uh, gave the scenario for representing the Department of Transportation. And the argument back in those days was, hey, uh, the plaintiff would say, hey, uh, jurors, 
surely the state is at least 1% negligent here. So you should, because back then there was no apportionment of damages. And so they just wanted 1% negligence for every defendant at least so that somebody with money would end up paying the damages. But um, anyway, that's not the, uh, that's not the way it works now. And we'll let Garen explain that. Yeah. So, so at least back then, Garen, Tame was representing a party to the litigation. I mean, in the, in the caption of the case, it said plaintiff versus uh, negligent driver and state of Georgia. Here, I don't think they have to be a party anymore, do they? That's right. Uh, it can be a non-party. So I'm not going to name the statute again because we can avoid the drop. But, but there's actually... will get its wings. <laughs> there are actually three, I guess, three scenarios, right? Um, when the contributorily negligent plaintiff sues a more negligent defendant when a plaintiff sues more than one defendant or when a plaintiff sues one defendant, but there are other non-party wrongdoers that contributed to the injury. So, you know, that third part would be, would be where Tain was coming in now. So the Department of Transportation may be a non-party, but there would be an argument on behalf of the defendant, I guess, at this point now, because it's an affirmative defense that the Department of Transportation was somewhat at fault and should share some, uh, some portion of the damages. So I, I know you have all this planned out and we, we are probably completely interrupting your flow and the way you had designed it. Are all, is all of this in one statute? <laughs> yes, I see what you're doing. Yes, it is in one statute. OCGA 511233. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. <laughs> see, he threw you a sound, sound bite curveball there. Oh man, he got me. Yeah. All right, so the contributorily negligent plaintiff, I guess, is like one subsection. Yes. And then more than one defendant, that means party. That's right. Right? That's is right. another subsection. But then other wrongdoers, not a party, is in yet another subsection. That's correct. So let's talk about the case against more than one defendant. This plaintiff, in my scenario, has brought an action and has actually served the defendant and the state. Tame was talking about the 1%, then therefore give all the money, you know, make make the state pay all the money. That's not how that works anymore, right? That's right. So now it is a portion and it's a little bit it's a little bit more cut and dry to say the least. You you find damages and uh, after you find the damages, then the jury says, "Okay, well, let's assign fault to each party. Plaintiff, defendant A, defendant B." And then the damages are awarded or apportioned that way. So if plaintiff is 10% liable, then the other 90% are split between defendant A and defendant B, and they are uh, solely responsible for their portion of the damages. And so that's the big difference. Now, joint and several liability is gone in this scenario, and now each defendant is solely liable for that portion, and they're not subject to any right of contribution. And, and that's interesting because it, let's say in the scenario we're talking about where we have two defendants and a plaintiff and the jury, let's say, awards a million dollars worth of damages just to make the numbers easy. And then they apportion uh, 10% of the negligence to the plaintiff. So basically $900,000 of that verdict now is to be split between the two defendants. And then they apportion their damages appropriately as well, correct? So you might have $600,000 against one defendant and 300,000 against the other defendant, or it might be 450,000 uh, split equally between the two defendants. Is that, is that the way it would work? 
That's exactly how it would work. And then each defendant is on the hook for their 450 uh, if it's that way. So let's say one defendant becomes insolvent. Well, the plaintiff's really SOL, where in the past they I'm would sorry, say, oh, SOL? Wait. Seriously, uh, out of luck. Thank you, Tane. Is there not a drop for that? <laughs> no, but, but, but I mean, no, but there is a bleep in case we need it. That's, um, that's what Steven's out there for, right, Steven? That's right. Yes. Steven. All right. So, so you were saying that the the plaintiff would be out of luck if one party was insolvent as to the four hundred fifty thousand dollars that was awarded against that defendant. Correct. Okay. Whereas in the past, joint and several, they could say, "Well, hey, I'm not able to collect against defendant A. Defendant B, you're on the hook for the whole portion of it." As I said, that's why Department of Transportation mm-hmm. was frequently in those cases. No insurance for defra- for driver A, who's ninety nine percent at fault, one <laughs> percent against the DOT with the big fat taxpayer pockets. So, Tane, as a practical matter, I'm, this is all sounding like you need special interrogatory verdict forms during this trial. You don't have to bifurcate this, I don't think, do you, Garen? Oh, I don't think I'm you defer- have to. Bifurcate. I'm deferring to you as the expert on this. I don't think you have to bifurcate I, it. In a perfect world, it would be nice to do a damages, and then uh, after damages are awarded, then uh, then move on to the liability or fault stage, just because then you're going to start introducing some other, p- perhaps inflammatory evidence. But I know that most plaintiffs attorneys and our defense attorneys are going to fight that tooth and nail because they all kind of want a little bit of that in there. Let's be honest. Uh, so I don't think it will, will be a problem to just let it all hang loose, if you will. <laughs> and then, so we do special interrogatories and let the, and tell the jury find this, then answer this, then answer that. Yeah. And actually there's a good case uh, that I found. It's we got a little jury instruction on it. It's Brown v. Tucker. It's 337 Georgia App 704. It's a 2016 case. Um, I'm just going to read you what the the judge said. He said, now, ladies and gentlemen, your job is, first of all, to set the total amount of damages that you feel like are appropriate for the damages incurred by the plaintiff. You are then, after that decision is made, to determine how much fault, if any, was due to the defendant and how much fault, if any, was due to the non-party. You're not to be concerned with anything, anything else other than the latter questions. Do not reduce your total damages by any percentage of fault apportionment the court will take it from there hmm. and that and that's still good law right still good law it's a 2016 case yes so again in the way this is presented to a jury the first thing they do is determine the amount of damages at some point though they also determine the percentage of fault attributable to the plaintiff if they were to say that the plaintiff's fault was let's say 60 percent then the damages to be paid by the other two defendants would be zero because uh, the the plaintiff would have more fault than the defendants. Is that correct? Absolutely. All right. Should be a bell. Ding. Correct. <laughs> I'm gonna get one of those for next time. I, next time I say something funny. Maybe a golf platform. That's All right. Nice, huh? So let's move on to subsection C, which is the other wrongdoers who are not a party to the action. And for those of us who are a little bit older. This, as you said, this came out in 87, but I'm not so sure this was the way torts was taught to us in 1991. Right. I just want to hit you where it hurts real quick and let you know in 1987, I was one year old. Uh, <laughs> and I was working at my first job at the attorney general's office in I 1987. Was sen- I was a senior at UGA. So there. <laughs> 
anyways, so yeah, it's much, it's much different. Um, and in fact, the code section says the trier of fact should consider the fault of all persons or entities who contributed to the alleged injury or damage, regardless if they are named are named party. So, you know, that kind of opens it up to a whole world. But then the statute does limit it and say, well, that defending party who intends to introduce evidence of a non-party being at fault must do must uh, give notice 120 days prior to trial. Or this is the other important part. Uh, if the plaintiff entered into a settlement agreement with a non-party, then that non-party's fault shall be considered. So, Tane, I don't, you know, we, we've had some medical malpractice cases where, for example, they sue the hospital, they sue the practice group, they, sur- they sue individual doctors maybe, and then at some point they settle with some, and then they go to trial against, say, the hospital. And so in that circumstance based upon what Tane's telling us, the statute says that it, it shall be considered. Sorry, Garen, not Tane. I knew Tane didn't know it. Garen knew I did, it. I didn't say anything, yeah. <laughs> I didn't that, know anything. That then they shall be considered. Now, Garen, I'm assuming that doesn't mean that you get in the amount of settlement or anything like that. It's just the fact that if you settle with somebody, that party's fault or lack thereof will be considered. Correct. Uh, the way I like to uh, think about it is their name is going to be on a verdict form and you know what and how much to fault you apportion to them as a jury that's that's going to be there and it what's going to be the real question is whether or not the defendant carries their affirmative defense uh, burden and i don't i couldn't find any cases on this but you know there's without going too far down a rabbit hole uh, if you can conceptualize a, a, a position where you know, plaintiff settles with hospital, but not with doctor. And then uh, doctor is trying the case presents no evidence as to the, the doctor's, um, I'm sorry, the hospital's fault. I think you still get it on the verdict form because it's, it's a shall statute. So yeah. go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, so if you're the plaintiff in that scenario, you're going to say, yeah, that defendant really didn't have any, uh, or that party really didn't have any uh, fault in this. You're going to downplay it because you've already settled with them. And so you want the jury to apportion the smallest amount of damages against them. And if you're the other defendant, you're at least going to pump up their responsibility uh, if, if you do want to present evidence about that. Absolutely. So I thought you said joint and several liability wasn't a thing. Well, it still survived Barely. I mean, it's hanging on by a thread. And there's a great case on that. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation versus Loudermilk, 305, Georgia, 558. It's a 2019 case. And that this is just a wonderful case to go through the history of joint and several and apportionment, how it stands today. Uh, but it, they basically say, yeah, joint and several liability is still around, but it's severely limited by the apportionment statute. The only thing that survived was a concerted action or civil conspiracy. So that's basically when you just cannot attribute fault or divide fault amongst two parties. So people acting in concert obviously would be that way. All right. So vicarious liability, is that still the thing? I mean, we learned that in law school, didn't we, Tane? Yeah. You know, respondeat superior and all of that. Yeah. I love God, it when I'm you speak Latin. I know. <laughs> it just rolls right off his uh, tongue, too. It's amazing. Geez. Well, so vicarious liability still exists, but there's an old rule 
that said, if a defendant employer conceded respondeat superior or vicarious liability, then they could not be uh, apportioned damages or be found negligent for negligent entrustment, hiring, training, supervision, retention, unless there was a punitive damages claim against them directly. But then in 2020, Quinn v. Hulsey, which is 850 Southeastern 2nd, 725, a 2020 case, as I said, they looked at the apportionment statute and vicarious liability and determined that claims that an employer was negligent are divisible from claims that an employee was negligent. And so uh, you're capable of apportioning percentages of fault amongst both of them. So basically the old rule is abrogated. All right. So, Garen, when we were chatting ahead of time, you talked about a factual scenario that made Tane hungry. Um, <laughs> let's run through that scenario because I think that's more – I think that's maybe more realistic even than the one that I gave. Right. And I'm not sure if I should name the company or not, so I'll just say truck, but nah. – Oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, so if this truck was carrying some kind of – I don't know, let's say put together a bunch of fruit that was in a shape of a bouquet and was really tasty. Let's does that, does that make it easier for you to put it that way? Yes, that does. And I, it makes me hungry as well. I'll tell you the yeah, truth. Yeah, absolutely. Like there was some chocolate covered pineapple in there or something like that. There anyway, you go. go ahead. Those go of ahead. you who are listening don't have the benefit. We are on a zoom meeting to record our podcast so that we can have visual clues with one another and Garen, um, he's a hand talker. So, yes. so, so, there's a, so as, as Garen gestures yeah. with his hand, because Wade and Garen are both from Augusta and it's close to master's time, I will describe what Garen is doing with his hands as he goes along. All right, Garen, tell the, tell our uh, listeners about this scenario. Right now, Garen has his hands folded as if praying. Okay. So truck is heading north. He's pointing north. Uh, van is heading south. Pointing his hand in the opposite direction. Car is behind Van, also heading south. Garen wishing he had a third hand. Van turns left in front of truck. Hand turns in a left motion going in front of right hand. Truck swerves left, hits car, which was behind Van. Garen's third hand comes into play, colliding with his right hand. I think that was pretty well done on both parts. Hands folded in satisfaction. <laughs> Golf clap. All right. So in that scenario, the truck that was headed, whichever way you started north, did not hit van carrying fruit. Correct. And but van carrying delicious fruit caused the wreck. Van, oh. oh, okay. All right. So, so car occupants sues both or just sued truck? Uh, sued both. Okay. But reached a uh, resolution with truck. So, which only left van carrying fruit as a party. Mm. So, uh, so then we have now we have a non party truck. And we have Van carrying fruit as the only defendant. And you said gestures and you, wildly. And you said shall, 
So that means that without any notice or anything, the fact that they settled with truck, the, the, the occupants of the car settled with truck, means that information comes into evidence, correct? Not the information that they settled, but the information, but the ability to apportion damages to the uh, the the truck. Okay, and that's their a, name. That's an important point. Can can the can the defendant or the plaintiff, depending on who's who believes it to be advantageous, can either one of them mention settlement, or do they just have to allow the jury to apportion damages with that party? I would always say absolutely not. Um, but there actually are some cases where uh, they've gotten into it a little bit with a curative instruction. And uh, of course, the court allowed it because of the judge's wonderful curative instruction. But I believe you can't unring that bell. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think in most scenarios, that makes perfect sense, too, because you don't want to tell the jury there's been a settlement, just like you don't want to tell them there's been insurance. Right. Usually those things kind of things are handled afterward by the judge after the jury decides what the, you know, the appropriate amount of apportionment would have been. So I wouldn't think you'd ever tell them that. Right. I, you know, I, I think a settlement means that that party's name is going to be on the verdict form for an apportionment. But not the amount of settlement, not the fact that you settled, not, none of that's coming in. Correct. Okay. Cause it really would sort of almost be a gauge for the jury to use as a, as a, I guess a weather vane as to what the appropriate amount of damages is. If we, if, if you settle with this guy for, you know, a hundred dollars and he is 20% at fault, then therefore this must be 80% of that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you just add that, that being, that must be the right measure. And that's not what we want to do. We, we want to let the trier of fact decide what the measure is. Certainly. And there's some, you know, inherent unfairness in that because a lot of times liability policy limits are what they are. So most of the time they're going to be 25,000. So, you know, if truck only carried 25,000, that's not to say that the claim against the truck was worth only 25,000, but that's all you're going to get. Garen so. is still gesturing with his hands. <laughs> all right. So let's wrap this up at, at, at a decent time. Uh, Garen, give us the, uh, the takeaway. How about that? Well, the trier of fact should always compare the plaintiff's negligence to that of the defendant's. That's comparative negligence. Then after a damage award is decided, you know, assuming that the plaintiff is not more than 50% uh, liable, then the damages are apportioned to each defending according to their own respective fault. Uh, the jury can consider and attribute fault to a non-party if it's noticed pre-trial, 120 days, or if there was a settlement with that non-party. Joint and several uh, is only applicable in a concerted action or in a civil conspiracy. And the respondeat superior rule has been abrogated by the apportionment statute. Ta-da! Garen's back. Ah, they, I mean, better than ever, I'd say. Uh, I think this hibernation during COVID's really helped up Garen's game. Well, I did have a question for you guys about the fan mail. I uh, have not been receiving mine. I'm wondering oh. if you're holding it during this time. I want to make sure it gets answered. So keep telling yourself that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Garen looks disappointed. <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you for listening to this stupidity we call the Good Judgment Podcast. And and we really appreciate your, your ideas. There have been uh, several emails where people have said they've enjoyed the podcast, but they've also given us some really good ideas for future topics. So please keep that up. And the outline for this, when you can hear all of that law that Garen's been citing, Tane, where can they find it? 
They can find that at goodjudgepod.com. And if you want to send us an email with an idea, you can send that to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So to wrap us up today, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening, people. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this session? (laughs) Yes, Wade. Yes, I do have some thoughts. Remember that a stitch in time saves nine. And if you know what that means, please contact us at goodjudgepod.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.